Here we go. Okay. So we are live with Eric. Eric, thank you for uh, joining. And uh, thanks for doing this out of schedule. I'm glad that we managed to find a time that um, works for both of us. Pleasure to be here. Um, I, um, I think I want to start with talking about your uh, motto, the world is ridiculous, let's keep it that way. What can you tell me about this? So the motto, well, first, let me say that it's actually stolen from a, from a comic book by Warren Ellis called Planetary. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Um, but oh, it also fantastic. sums up uh, a big part of my view of the world. Uh, I've always really believed that the biggest source of evil in this world is people who lack the ability to laugh at themselves. If you have the ability to laugh at yourself, there's really only so much harm you can cause to the people around you. So by kind of emphasizing the good ridiculousness in our world, um, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about several times in the in over our talk, uh, I I really like to think that we could build a better world simply by embracing. It. And there is so much ridiculousness. The world is completely ridiculous, uh, as George Bernard Shaw said. Uh, you know, the world no more ceases to be funny uh, to be funny when someone cries than it ceases to be tragic when someone laughs. And that's just true of so much human experience. Absolutely. Um, okay, so um, what, what can you tell me about? Um, I, I'd like to, to to know the story of your um, empire. How did you get the idea to start a micronation? Why did you choose that name? How, how the whole story um, originated? I have to admit that there's an element of creation myth to all that because it goes back to when I and the original founders were little little kids, and at the time nobody thought to keep very good records of uh, where where it all came from. So we've had to reconstruct it all a bit. But uh, as near as we've been able to figure out, it was probably on my fifth birthday where a bunch of us just sort of felt that wouldn't it be great if we had our own country? And of course, as five-year-olds, you have no idea what, how much more is involved in that. And, you know, everything just seems feasible. So we started it. And then for whatever reason, you know, most kids at some point create imaginary worlds and stuff. And uh, mine just never went away. And so it was, it was mostly just sort of my own little side thing for many years, never really forgotten. Uh, and then there was this wonderful thing that happened called the internet around 1997. And suddenly uh, I, was, I was finding all these other micronations out there, other people who created something like mine. And uh, I realized there was this wider world we could bring things to. And we created a website and shockingly, people just keep joining as members. How, how many, how many uh, citizens uh, you have? And also, like, what's the location of your uh, country? Because I see, uh, I was reading on Wikipedia that uh, you're not just um, tied to one specific location. That's right. So uh, today we have 455 members, uh, all of whom are, you know, real human beings who have, uh, with informed consent, completed a, citizen, a citizenship application. Uh, they're scattered all over the world. I think we have, I don't think we currently have anyone in, in Antarctica. We did at some point, uh, but otherwise they're really all over. And our land claims are similarly scattered all over. Uh, our headquarters, of course, is uh, in Montreal, my home, so legally owned land, not necessarily legally seceded, but legally owned. Um, and we make some land claims in, in the United States, but they're kind of vague. You know, we, we have a cow pasture somewhere. Only the cows actually know where it is. So that's a hard one for the tourists to get to. Uh, we claim part of the planet Mars, uh, purchased uh, semi-legally from a company called the Lunar Embassy way back when. I think they're still around. Uh, and the southern half of the planet Pluto, which is not legally purchased. 
uh, and one completely imaginary planet called Virgin, uh, which probably does not exist. But in the event it's eventually discovered, then it's ours. We, we claimed it a while back. <laughs> That's fantastic. How did you how did you purchase not legally uh, Pluto? Well, we didn't purchase. We just sort of said this is ours now. And <laughs> for some reason, no one else has objected up until now. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, how's the um, application process to become to become a citizen? Is it um, like a hard selection? Is there a fee to pay, or anyone could join? What, what's the criteria? We try to make it as unselective as possible because we want to make it possible for as many people to join as can. So there are no fees either to join or ongoing as taxes. Um, that's always a, a long discussion among us because lots of people, lots of people involved would love to see us find a way to monetize this, but that's never been the main goal. Uh, becoming a citizen is really as simple as just completing the application form, which is uh, only a very short thing, only takes a few seconds to complete. It should actually probably be a little longer as a form of quality control. Uh, and then they're, they're a member. Uh, the hardest part of the process is that uh, I then send every single applicant uh, an email asking them to confirm that they really want to join. And about half people never respond to that email. So I don't know if that's because they change their mind or it goes to their junk mail or who knows what. Uh, the much harder part where, where we lose a lot of our members is every year we do something called the culling of the inactive, where uh, an email goes out to every single member just to prove that they're you know still alive. Because otherwise, unlike bigger countries, we don't have tax records or hospital records or things to prove people are still out there. And anyone who doesn't respond to that email within within a month loses their citizenship as well. So that's one of our methods of making sure that when we say we have 455 people, and at least as of last June, that was all people who are still alive and knew their citizens. Yeah, you need to have some sort of like uh, death uh, count as well. Like, how can you be aware if people? You need the registry. It's interesting. So the goal is not to make a profit out of it. Well, it would be nice, but then, no, I. I <laughs> I was very realistic when I got into doing this that I was probably never going to make any money. I, I, I have been surprised, though. I mean, when we've uh, when we've minted coins and banknotes in the past, we've at least broken even on those. Uh, and there was a short period in medical school where I was actually paid to do some modeling based on my work with the empire. And uh, that was a, a, a shocking amount of money, considering how little work had to go into it. So good lifestyle working as a model. Um, and, and the money from that. It paid all of our expenses for several years. So it can be monetized. We just haven't. Interesting. Interesting. Let's talk about the modeling a little bit. I, had, I have a few questions about um, what what the system is, but I'm intrigued by the modeling. Uh, and I also like your, um, how do you call it, uniform outfit? What's the right word for it? The, the popular term in the community is regalia. Regalia, but okay. What can you tell me about it? Like, I, I like the, the the smiley faces, uh, and I think they're just uh, a metaphor for uh, like they represent your motto in a way, right? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, first of all, I'll tell you, I'm wearing an Eric Liss original. Uh, it's my designs, heavily influenced by stuff stolen off of Pinterest, uh, which is a great resource for costume ideas. Uh, and it was it, the uh, suit itself was made by a costume company in China. So yeah, cost less than a regular suit that I would wear to work. Uh, it's terribly comfortable. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, the smiley faces, you're right, uh, sort of represent the the national motto, the national philosophy, but also the, it's just this wonderful internationally recognized symbol. 
you, you most people they see a smiley face and they can't help but have a positive reaction to that and it's, it's we know it's hardwired into our very brains that uh, you know infants are born and they react to a smiling face so something about it is this you know, universal symbol that people can really relate to they don't necessarily like it but they can relate to it Interesting. And I like how you said something about being universally recognized. Um, I like the concept that um, to bring people united, uh, to bring people together, we need to like transcend some forms of obstacles and uh, communication and language can be an obstacle to, to, to bringing people together. So um, in terms of like mm, policy, uh, the way you manage uh, your uh, nation, do you have any, any goal in those regards, like um, uniting people or um, your goal is rather like expanding your nation and conquering or acquiring more territory? Well, what's the purpose of uh, the empire? A bit of all of the above. The official goal of the American empire is to conquer this pitiful mud ball under my roof. Uh, since that is obviously never going to happen, and I don't think I would like it very much if it did, uh, the less official goal has been to try and be a model of what a country could look like. You know, we try and institute government and government policies based on what we think a good country would do. And uh, by in that way, we want to show what something could look like, both, you know, the, a functioning, efficient government, but also the whole tongue-in-cheek aspect and being able to take things not too seriously. So the, the government has to run efficiently. The paperwork has to get filed and records have to get processed. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there can't be a little bit of silliness to it. And then coming to this other point, you said, yeah, you know, it, there's always the goal of expanding in different ways. We haven't wanted to expand our territory for a while because as it is, we've got a whole bunch of territory that understandably we're not using. Uh, but certainly it's always wonderful to attract new people. And the most fun part of being in a micronation I've always found isn't even actually implementing my own policies but having someone who I've never met before come in and join the country, and after a year or two or seven or whatever of being a member, suddenly they come up with some brilliant idea for us to do, something that really expands the culture or the government. Uh, and then I have the fun of implementing this thing that I would never have thought of myself. And then I really have the feeling like I've brought something into the world. It's tremendous fun. I can imagine. I can only imagine. Sounds sounds um, fascinating. How how hard is it? Like uh, in terms of commitment um, to 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 run a nation. Like how how much of your time does it use? Well, let's bear in mind that we're not running a very big nation here. So <laughs> I, I'm actually watching The Crown with my wife these days, the uh, the British show, and I'm seeing how much time and effort has to do, has to go into running a government like that, and it seems like a terrible deal. Uh, running the empire takes me uh, you know, about, about an hour per week scattered across different days, um, responding to emails, uh, processing the new citizenship applications. A big part of the job, which is our foreign relations, actually isn't me. That's handled by my foreign minister, and that takes a huge load off my hands. But for him, even, I think it's only a couple of hours per week. And most of that is writing polite letters to new countries saying, no, we aren't going to recognize you. You appear to be ridiculous and not in a not so good sense. Um, going back to um, I, I, okay, what are your political views uh, in the rest of the world? So you founded an, an empire. You're um, that, that's a monarchy, right? So how does that affect your political views in the outside world? Like, are you pro monarchy or um, where do you stand? 
Well, first, let me say it, it's actually the emperor is actually an elected position in the American Empire. Oh, so okay, I didn't know. Well, don't look so surprised because the monarchy part's coming. Uh, it, it is for micronation. It's all about self-aggrandizement. Uh, <laughs> so it, it is an elected position, but of course, emperor is a position of her life because I'm the one who wrote the constitution and I knew what's good for me. But in theory, you know, when I either step down some years from now or if anything should happen to me, and I truly hope the empire would outlast me, uh, there are provisions in place for how to elect my replacement. Um Beyond that, the, the emperor actually does not have very much power. Uh, in uh, in our uh, the executive branch of our government is a senate which has two members from each of our colonies, all of whom are elected. And when any when any government business comes up, each of the senators has one vote, and then the emperor has a second additional vote in the event of ties and things like that. So it's a little bit of extra power, but in theory, the senate itself has a lot more power than I. Uh, so it is in most ways democratic. That being said, I am the only person who has the passwords to our website, so I can do pretty much anything I want and nobody can stop me. Uh, and of course, as the public face of the government in different intermicronational forums and meetings and things, uh, I, I am the one whose voice gets heard the most. So that's effective power certainly sits in my hand. Uh, but coming back to what you asked, you know, uh, my political feelings were really influenced by uh, being born in Canada. I had the very good fortune to be born in one of the safest and most peaceful countries in the world a place where it's safe to create your own country and claim that you're separating. You know, I love Canada, by the way. I've been there a couple of times and it's just, but I've been to the other coast. I was in um, Vancouver. That's the right one to go on. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I do believe in democracy, uh, but then again, I also believe in, I, I'm embarrassed. I forget if it was Winston Churchill or, or, or Aristotle who said something to the effect of that democracy is the worst form of government. It's just the best one we've tried so far. I think it was, uh, might have been Winston Churchill. Something like that. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering the quotation. It doesn't <laughs> sound right. So I do believe strongly, actually, in the benevolent dictatorship. I think what the, what the world in this moment probably needs is one person to just take it over and fix stuff and make the decisions that are unpopular that no politician is ever going to make. But I also recognize that there's nobody out there who I would trust to be the one to have that power, including myself. So in that sense, I, I tend towards democracy. It you know, keeps any one person from doing anything too stupid. Well, the problem that was happening, at least like in the Roman Empire, uh, they would put uh, somebody in charge in times of war, and then they wouldn't remove themselves in times of peace. So <laughs> power goes to your head, and then... Um, yeah, it, 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 that's the trick. That's a catch, I guess. Um, My favorite philosopher, Douglas Adams, said anyone capable of gaining power should by no means be allowed to have it. <laughs> Absolutely. Luckily, I'm completely unqualified to have power and therefore I'm the right choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can agree with that. Like uh, in the sense that sometimes we should uh, trust who we don't expect to trust in a certain sense, like somebody whose goal is not to get to power. If, if they have no interest in power, then probably they're fit to, 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 to do what's best for the rest of the population. How does your uh, position of um, leader affect, uh, or vice versa, how does your job as a psychiatrist affect your work as a leader of a micronation? It's, it's a funny question for me. Because I founded the Empire when I was so young, 
I've never I've never really lived without being the emperor. You know, as far as my earliest memories go, I was already, this was already a part of my identity. <laughs> Which is what happens so, to most emperors anyway. I guess so. Sure, There's certainly the ones who are born into it or you know, conquer at a young age. I don't. I, I never asked. I would never would have had the chance to ask Alexander the Great. You know, <laughs> how did your life change after you? But yeah. Um, so we definitely plays a role. I, I think actually it, it goes both ways. So my experience with micronations definitely shaped my approach to mental health and psychiatry because I've had the chance to meet people from all over the world. I've interacted with cultures I never would have come across otherwise. I've had political discussions and ethical discussions. So it really broadened my eyes to, broadened my mind, whatever, to uh, all the different ways people can see the world. And that, you know, when you work in mental health, is a huge asset. The ability to step out of your own preconceptions and think about how other people do things. So that's been good for me. Uh, and I guess the other way around, you know, I, I ended up working in mental health because I'm interested in human beings and I'm especially I'm interested in stories. So, you know, when you get right down to it, micronations are very much someone just trying to write their story in a different way and especially trying to share that story with other people in some way. Interesting. Mm, you mentioned that. Um... You are an expert uh, on the first American emperor. What do you mean by that? Emperor Joshua Norton of the United States. Joshua Norton, uh, yeah. Uh, what, what I wrote to you in, in my message was that I might be the world's authority on the mental health of Emperor Joshua Norton. And I say this because I am, I am to my knowledge, the only mental health expert in the world who has ever actually been written and published something on the topic. Uh, so I am certainly the most published person in the world on the subject of his mental health. Uh, and having gone to a couple of different hospitals and given talks about him, I'm probably the person who has spent the most time talking about it in academic circles. Somebody else might know it more than me, but they've spent less time on the, on the subject. Um, but I had the great pleasure a few years ago of uh, writing a paper looking at, at Emperor Norton based on what we know about him. I, I didn't meet the man. A quick word for your listeners, uh, Joshua Norton lived in the 1800s. Uh, he, he was a resident of San Francisco, born in, I want to say, South Africa, and moved to San Francisco. Uh, he was a successful businessman, lost his fortune, probably went completely completely mad, uh, and declared himself the emperor of the United States and reigned for over 30 years. And what's wonderful about his story is how the whole city of San Francisco sort of adopted him and treated him like the emperor. <laughs> so here was this person who might have ended up homeless or on the streets or dead or who, or who knows what, uh, who instead became this hero and had tens of thousands of people march at his, at his funeral. But he probably did suffer from a mental disorder, most likely what we would call a delusional disorder. Uh, and we can go into that if you like, but you know nobody really cares about the boring details. The fact is, he was this amazing man who brought, who made the world a really more interesting place and made a lot of people very happy. How did he make uh, people happy? What kind of influence did he have on 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 the city, like on the or, or at least in his um, environment? Norton influenced the environment in a few ways. Uh, one was people just really liked having this guy walking around the streets in an emperor's costume. Uh, they they enjoyed it. Uh, local businesses would accept his basically hand, homemade currency. Uh, he was given free food at restaurants and free seats at the opera and plays because everyone wanted to be, to be able to say the emperor comes here. Uh, he was given free regalia and, and uh, walking sticks by the city, I guess, because they didn't want him looking shabby if he was the emperor. <laughs> and other cities actually competed. Other cities tried to, to poach him away to come live there. But I guess he must have just really loved San Francisco. Uh 
there's there's a lot of stories of his proclamations uh, among among others uh, i'm not going to remember the names of all the people involved but he he was actually an early advocate for mental health in that era uh when there was a a failed rebellion i want to say in the united states norton advocated that instead of execution the man who had led the, the uh, rebellion should have received mental health care because he was probably ill there's, there's a certain irony there but certainly some empathy and there's a myth probably only a myth probably never happened but, a, uh, but this wonderful story where supposedly he put himself between an angry mob and San Francisco's San Francisco's Chinatown and just stood in front of the mob and prayed until the mob got embarrassed and walked away. And in doing so probably saved lives and who knows how many thousands of dollars in property damage. So he, he really was this, this fantastic figure. Again, that, that story probably never happened, but it says something about who people think or want to think that he was. That's fascinating. And aside from that, you know, he was pro- uh, giving people the vote. He was pro-freedom. He was against political parties on the grounds that uh, they were probably divisive of the population, which, you know, God's know the universe proved him right about that. But Is there any that, legacy to what he did or what he was like? Um... He's, still, he's still very much a hero in San Francisco. His grave is uh, the site of a pilgrimage. You know, there's always little stones on his gravestone from people who drop by. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I had the pleasure of going on a walking tour of downtown San Francisco led by an actor who gives the entire two or three hour tour in character as Emperor Norton. Uh, tremendous fun. He breaks character only about halfway through during the coffee break, and then he talks a bit about, about why he uh, did that. Um, there's there's a statue of Norton near one of the city bridges. And he, he is, even to this day, very much regarded as a hero. Aside from that, you know, there's been a couple of musicals written about him. He's been, uh, his, his character has been used in comic books and novels and things. There's even a brand of absinthe named after him. Wow. So, so yeah, he's quite a, quite a guy. I've never been able to get my hands on a bottle. It's very hard to get outside of San Francisco. I can imagine. Uh, I, I'll keep that in mind next time I go to San Francisco. Um, going back to the Erican um, Empire, mm -hmm. what's the... Okay, uh, what fascinates me about micronations, and I mentioned this uh, on my conversation to Emperor George as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, I should wear his pin. He gave me this fantastic um, uh, pin. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, it's okay. I'm sorry we have to do this from different sides of the ocean because <laughs> if we were meeting face, I would absolutely give you some sort of present you could wear as well. <laughs> Thank But, you very uh, much. Um, so I, I mentioned to him that uh, the reason why at first I got interested in um, Micronation was because I had this um, rough idea that I wanted to do something like that. Mm. Um, so I guess I, I'll start with another question. You being a psychiatrist, how does one person's uh, ego affect the uh, desire to start a nation? Like, Do you think that's generally the main drive or or there is something more than that i can't answer that with certainty uh of course you know as a scientist of course i have to let you know when i do and don't have evidence for what i'm saying uh but having had the chance to meet a lot of people who founded their own country and not just micronations you know, i'm also thinking with about people who i've met on psychiatry wards who believe they were kings and emperors and things so there's this spectrum of healthy ways of starting your country and unhealthy ways of starting your country um but there's there probably is always some degree of ego uh it's not a surprise that most micronations 
are ruled by you know an, a, a monarch or something like that because people when they're creating something of course they they want to be in charge whether they're whether they're qualified for it or not and whether they would actually enjoy being in charge in the real world or not uh i think when i started doing it i don't know how much ego came in because i, I don't think i consciously wanted to be the big person the big cheese uh but i somehow did end up as emperor and obviously i haven't given it away ever since so certainly there's some ego there it makes me happy to think that whatever else is going on in my life and however much respect i'm being treated by the person standing behind the counter at the restaurant uh, i am still royalty so there's definitely some ego there and i think mo most micronationalists who you meet at least the ones who create their own countries there's a there's a little bit of a thrill of knowing that you're the person in charge even when you don't have very much power and any power you have is just given to you by your friends. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I guess I have two questions then. One is mm -hmm. what's the uh, goal? Like how do you see the Erican Empire uh, grow in the near future? And the other one is how do you plan on or how do you wish to affect uh the world what's the impact that you would like the, the, this nation to have on the on the world so well, i'll answer that in order so i mean the in terms of how we hope to grow in the future the most obvious one of course is just to keep attracting new citizens over time uh and thereby wonderful new ideas and creative new blood because like i said you know we, we've done so many wonderful things that would never have occurred to just me Uh, the, I, I really want to believe the empire is something bigger than I am, even if I'm the only member of it most people will ever see. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we have all the various accoutrements of a country, meaning we mint our coins, we produce banknotes, we print passports. So I'd love to see us do more things like that. Uh, we recently acquired a 3D printer, which is sadly broken at the moment, uh, with the goal of starting to print up more medals that we can give away more cheaply. Uh, maybe start making little figurines that we could give people you know, for use in games like Warhammer and things. That's nice. Uh, How does the passport work? Like, what, what kind of... Um, it, what, it doesn't what, work. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would strongly advise anyone against trying to cross borders using our passport because they, and perhaps I, would get in a great deal of trouble. Um, but it's a Fair novelty enough. document. And for legal purposes, it says all over it that it's a novelty document. But most importantly, you know, as with so much of what we do, It's just meant to give people a smile. And particularly when we, when we go to uh, micronational meetings and, and things, um, and you know, I know, I, you, know you talked about that with, uh, his, with His Majesty George of Atlantium, uh, I bring with some passports and people are happy to take one. And then we sort of all go around to each other's tables, stamping each other's passports. And yeah, it's jolly good fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's good. Um, I think uh, that that would make also for a great um, collection of uh, regalia as well. Uh, I know that there is a lot of uh, interest in in that. Like um, George himself told me, Emperor George, that um, one of the main sources of uh, income of the micronation is uh, basically um, comes from the the coins and notes that he he prints. Um, how much, uh, is it merchandise? Uh, does it qualify as merchandise? Yeah, it probably qualifies as merchandise. Uh, but I, th I think, you know, if you, if you were a coin collector getting coins from the United States, you'd probably still call that merchandise. It would just be, you know, merchandise of a defined value. Uh, it's true that a lot of our income does from compete from people buying, uh, coins and banknotes. 
just last week, I was sending some off to a guy. Um, and, and, and again, you know, we try and sell them at a low enough cost to be accessible to everybody, but we also want to make some of our money back. Uh, passports we do sell, but they're also freely available on our website for download or printing at home. Because again, the goal isn't to monetize it as much as it is to just make it available to people. Sounds good uh, to me. I'm sorry? Sounds good. Sounds good. Like uh, I like this um, uh, this poor interest towards monetization to keep the the goal of the of the micronation more pure. And, and, and in in those regards, what's the what's the agenda of of the of your nation? Like what um, how, again? How do you um, envision uh, your impact on the world uh, to be? Mm. Um, it's, it's something I think about from time to time. I mean, the short tongue-in-cheek answer is that I have no vision of what my impact in the world is going to be, and probably I will have absolutely none. Um, but more broadly speaking, you know, I, I have a very, very small measure of fame in the world at this moment, since my name is on a Wikipedia article and things. Every so often I meet someone for the first time and they say, oh, I've heard of you, which is always a little terrifying. Um, <laughs> I would like to think that if I have any impact on this world, It's you know, coming back again to our motto that I've made the world just a slightly better and slightly stranger place. I, I would hope that 100 years from now, some, some kid is going to read my story and think, oh, I can try to accomplish the impossible. Why not? And hopefully something will come of that. I, I'm quite certain you know, I'm, I'm not brilliant enough to come up with new political philosophy that's going to change the world. I don't understand the economics well enough to solve every, every crisis on the planet right now. And I wouldn't be a very good emperor if I actually was in charge of the world. But what I am good at is bringing together the right people. And I hope that my legacy, as you might say, is going to be that the next person, far more brilliant than me, uh, is going to come along and do something really cool. And, yeah, we'll see what happens with that, I guess. Interesting. It's, it's definitely... a um... Uh, very valuable skill the ability to bring the right people together um and and, and when i say right people um comes to mind um a question that i often find um myself asking to myself if that makes sense um good people implies that there is good so there must be bad so do, do you agree uh that Ultimately, there is an objective good and bad? That's a wonderful question. I'd have to preface my answer by saying that I'm a scientist and not a philosopher. So okay. there, is, there are some important dimensions to that question I'm not qualified to answer. Uh, I think it depends how you're using the word good and bad. And I'm not trying to weasel out of your question. <laughs> a second ago, we were talking about the right people. And obviously, we didn't mean just moral, ethical, good people. We meant the people who will work well together and do the right thing. Uh, but if you're asking about objective good and bad, I, part of me wants to say no as a moral relativist. But I think there are some things that most people would agree with, that you know there is such a thing as good, healthy selfishness, enlightened self-interest, but that by and large, if you're going to murder a family and eat their skin, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> and we can agree on certain things. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then again, some culture somewhere you know if we if we ever discover alien races one day then i'm sure that as star trek has suspected they will have all sorts of interesting different ways of seeing good and evil um scientifically you know i can tell you there's a handful of genes that have been associated with things like criminality and lacking empathy 
the short form of the serotonin transporter gene and the monoamine oxidase A gene. But even, even someone who's born with those genes isn't necessarily evil. They're just potentially predisposed to certain behavior patterns. And most of those behavior patterns only if they themselves go through some sort of trauma in their youth. So a lot of what we, what we call evil is probably sort of a reaction to a, to a person's own pain, where for whatever reason, someone has to turn off their empathy and then become kind of a monster. Interesting. Can we, can we dive into that um, a little bit? I've always been interested in... Uh, I was having a similar conversation with a um, psychologist a few uh, months ago. Um, lack of empathy uh, can lead to... And forgive me if I don't use the right terms, but a sociopath or psychopath... Uh, I, I don't, I'm not really sure what the difference is right now, uh, but they're generally associated with. So the 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 main um, issue with them is like a lack of empathy, right? And that makes them the, act in a way that could be um, uh, harmful towards uh, other individuals. The the classic teaching is that psychopaths are people who lack empathy and therefore don't care if they hurt other people. But there's, there's another way of looking at that, which I have some sympathy with, but is not the official stance, which is that uh, certainly some of the people I've met who were, who on the surface can appear kind of monstrous, when, when you get to know them, they really have a lot of empathy, but to survive in the world they're, they're in, they've had to, to at least in certain situations turn that off, which is why you can see these people who are you know going out and selling drugs one day but then they're fantastic with their friends and family the next. And then, of course, if you look at a really successful psychopath, the ones who run companies and things, uh, they, have, they must have something like empathy because they understand how other people think. They can empathize with another person to the extent of knowing how that person's going to think and react. They can be manipulative. They can play with emotions. So it, it's not empathy in the sense of, I care that I've heard you, but it, it's something in that family. So it's probably, it's probably more complicated than just having or not having empathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in order to manipulate somebody, someone, you, you need to first understand what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Exactly. And you're yeah. saying that all of this is associated to a genetic predisposition. So the ability to, to switch some, on and off. To some extent, it's probably not just one gene. But yeah, there's a handful of genes that we know are more commonly seen in people with some of these disorders, like what we call antisocial personality, which at, at its extreme becomes psychopathy and sociopathy. And pardon me as I just scoot around trying to escape the sun. It's not just, <laughs> not just to keep the audience on its toes by changing the background. <laughs> it's perfect. It actually looks better. Um, is there any uh, treatment for that? Like um, through um, pharmaceutical or, or um, therapy? If only. Uh, generally speaking, people with these disorders don't get better with therapy. They can actually they can actually respond to things like social skills training uh, if they want to learn. You know, some, if you can persuade someone that they should act as if they had empathy to avoid being punished by society, that that, that actually works sometimes. And that's where you get the people. You know, I'm, I'm not going to nitpick your words, but a few minutes ago you said someone who lacks empathy it makes them hurt others, and that's not necessarily true. Someone who lacks empathy can still choose not to hurt others. It's just harder for them to want to not hurt others. Interesting. Uh, but th there are certainly people out there who are complete bastards, but they get along just fine because they're not overtly bastards. And you know, we bump into these people on a daily basis. Uh, but you know, the, where you get into trouble is the people who do the really over-the-top kind of things. So yeah, you, you can always help some people. 
And then, of course, you've got the people who aren't who aren't born born monsters, but they, you know, grow up in poverty and they have to turn to crime or gangs just to survive. And these are the people who later on can really turn their life around and often go on to help the next generation become a lot better. So it's a, we, we never want to just say that someone is evil. It, it puts us, it, it really wipes out the possibility they can become better than they appear to be today. Yeah, I think labeling is always um, not the best thing to do in, in, in most scenarios. Um, but you, you mentioned like how society punishes individual. Um, let, let's talk about that, if you like, for a little while. I'm interested in um, your um, ideas uh, in the regards of um, consequences for, let's say, breaking the law um, in different countries, including in your micronation. Like, what happens in your micronation when somebody acts uh, in an unlawful way? And um, I guess uh, what where I want to go is uh, how do you see the world uh, if you compare, like, the, the political... Um, I mean, the judiciary system in, uh, I don't know, in the US compared to Sweden, for instance? So... Uh, the first thing I have to say is that fortunately, this is something we've never really had to experiment with. There's very little crime in the empire that we know of. Part of that is because our population is so spread out, of course, there's only so much harm one member of the empire can do to another. Um, so we That's never good, really I guess. To... It's one of the advantages of a distributed population. Uh, I'm sure we've had members probably go to jail and, and I just never found out about it. And perhaps that's why some of them ended up losing their citizenship and not responding to our annual email. Uh, and we've certainly had members who were victims of crime. And then as much as I might wish to, there's very little I can do about that. We have to leave it to you know, the authorities of the macro nations that they live in. Uh, in theory, if we had a penal system, the empire would want to have one that moves away from and the death penalty, if at all possible, and hopefully move away from incarceration. You know, years of good, good quality scientific research have really shown that jail doesn't do a lot of good things for people. The, the, the worst people go in and they come out more bad, and plenty of innocent people come in and they also come out more bad. Not necessarily more criminal, but usually with more trauma. Um, but I also don't know what's better. I don't think anyone has yet come up with something to replace the prison system as we currently know it, except you know, moving away from for-profit prisons, which are one of the most horrifying things in the entire world. Absolutely. Um, personal opinion, anyway. Again, no sign. Actually, there is scientific evidence to back that up, just not that it's the most horrible thing in the world, just plain horrible. <laughs> um, I hope that if and when I'm in a position to run an actual country that would need to answer this question, I'm going to need some very, very smart advisors to help me come up with this. Um, Beyond saying prison bad, rehabilitation good, I, I don't have a brilliant answer to that question. Because I guess the problem is not about the punishment, but the rehabilitation itself. How to help these individuals to contribute to society and act in a, in a much more positive way. And this is a question that has been, um, been asked for years and centuries, and the, there is no answer so far. And part of it, of course, there's always a certain percentage who just can't be rehabilitated, either again, because they're psychopaths and by definition won't get better, don't want to, or because we don't have the tools. Um, it's tough. But certainly, we you know, some people do get better with treatment as opposed to punishment. 
the trouble is that as human beings, we just really enjoy punishing. It makes us feel good. Um, yes. Uh, I mean, because that's, um, that comes down to power, I guess, right? Power and retribution and all these things. But power is certainly the biggest part of it. Why do people find pleasure in um, power? I kind of want to say they just do as if it, as if that's you know the, the simple answer you know most people like having power and the only difference is whether we manifest that by playing video games which fulfill our power fantasies or by beating up our romantic partner which gives us a kind of power in another way entirely and obviously not a great one yeah. uh i mean we could talk about neurobiology and how the feeling of power gives us a little, a little hit of dopamine, the neurotransmitter in the brain behind both pleasure and addiction. But when you get right down to it, it's just something about the way we're built. And on an evolutionary biology level, it probably speaks to the traits that we needed to survive, to, to outperform the next person over and have a better cave and have better food. You had to then take their stuff and run away with it. Or at least, you know, kill another animal and eat it. Yeah, I thought I thought it would um, come down to to dopamine or to any um, possible chemical reaction reaction that happens in 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 our brains because that's generally what drives uh, human emotions anyway, and not just the negative ones, even the, the the positive ones. If you think about love, for instance, that's that's just like um, something that happens in our brain. It's an inflammation, I might say. Basically, I don't want to be overly reductive, but you know, on a certain level. <laughs> Everything that happens in our in our world, our perception of our world, is just one neurotransmitter or another firing. And obviously, it gets a lot more complex than that. I, I, I don't personally believe that we are, you know, this pre-programmed computer with no free will. But on a, on a biological level, that's, that's sort of what we are. Stimulus triggers dopamine, therefore, seek out stimulus again. I like where this uh, could go. Um, we're not a biological computer with no free will. Let's break that down a little bit. Uh, I kind of tend to, uh, I'm not sure believe is the right word, but um, I sympathize for the first part of this, for the premise that uh, claims that we are biological computers. And again, computer as well might not be the perfect word, but um, machine might be, be more i don't think we have the right word to define what i'm trying to say but we're definitely a an approx the, the, the closest approximation would be a biological machine but yeah. where it gets tricky is the free will part what do you think about about free will again not a philosopher so i think anything <laughs> i say so uh to some extent your 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 use of the word machine is exactly correct there are some things which are just programmed into us If you hit me with a hammer, I will react, whether I choose to or not. Yes. Um, if you inject certain drugs into me, I will feel euphoria or rage or fear or something, whether I want to or not. So we are, in the end, slaves to our biology. Uh, but where, where I would bring in concepts like free will, I'll, I'll, I'll say in two ways. One is, again, this beautiful ridiculousness in the world. It's just really hard to imagine that a mere biological machine would ever write three seasons of a television show Monty Python because there's no biological benefit to that. It makes no sense. It's fun, but it makes no sense. So there's got to be not just machinery 
or at least a machine that's capable of being completely absurd for its own sake. Uh, and then the other part is the people who are capable of acting against their apparent best interests. And of course, we see this in animals as well. It's not just us brilliant, wise, homo sapiens sapiens who are able to you know, act with uh, sacrifice or whatever. Um, you know, meerkats and fish and all kinds of things uh, will sacrifice their lives for, for, other, for loved ones. The, the great biologist J.B.S. Haldane uh, famously said, you know, and again, I'm going to butcher this quote, but something to the effect of, I will give my life, my life for my brother, or for two cousins, four half-cousins, or eight more distant relatives. Uh, and he was playing with the idea of heredity and, and genomes and family trees, of course. Um, but the, the idea of altruism, which biologists debate back and forth, really argues against us just being machines. And people are able to do weird stuff for seemingly crazy reasons. This is absolutely fascinating. Like I, I could talk about, uh, but, it, but in the end, it's just um, speculations, I guess. Uh, there is no. The the fun thing about evolutionary biology is you're always just coming up with a, a post hoc and after the fact explanation that can never actually be theoretically tested. Which means you can say anything you like. It's tremendous. It's tremendously satisfying. Yes, and that gives us like pleasure in a way as well. Uh, did you read the book um, *Sapiens* or any of of, uh, of that um, saga? <laughs> Yuval Noah Harari. Yes, uh, I I really enjoyed *Homo Deus* especially. So brilliant stuff. Same. And he wrestles with some of these questions. Absolutely. Do Do you agree with this um, theory? Uh, I I think I like again. The premise, like it builds up to a point and then it reaches a conclusion and I'm like, ah, maybe. <laughs> but everything that came before that, I was like, yeah, that sounds like right. Well, I mean, so um, so taking Homo Deus, for example, uh, Harari, he, he's talking about stuff I would call mental health issues from the perspective of a historian, which is not wrong. I mean, some, one, of the, one of the seminal books of psychiatry was written by a, by a historian as opposed to an analyst or whatever. Uh, so not knocking that, but he comes at it from a particular perspective, and I don't 100% share that perspective. Uh, I agree with a lot of the conclusions he, come up, he comes up with when he talks about, for example, our evolving towards this almost cybernetic relationship with social media and the sharing photos and things, whether it would become, as he sort of hypothesizes, a new religion or replace human religion. I think that's where he was, you know, sort of, exaggerating a bit for dramatic effect but i think he does hit the nail on the head when he's talking about the existential issues that all human beings face the having not necessarily fearing death but having to decide what what it means that we've got a limited time on this world probably uh if anyone out there is immortal and we, we don't know about it uh and that we therefore have to find some sort of meaning in a again you know completely ridiculous world and about a, the concept of a um, collective global consciousness, um, there are some people who uh, theorize that that uh, the, the evolution of, of what we cannot really sense right now is going to throw uh, is going to go through uh, machines as well, um, more specifically um, AI and uh, human AI integrations. Do you think like Mm, disregarding all the sci-fi uh, behind this, do you think that in the future 
is it it would be realistic to have uh, to solve the problem of a ruler uh, that doesn't want to remove um, himself or that doesn't have uh, from power? Do you think the problem w- could be solved thanks to AI? So like humankind collectively um, generating some sort of artificial. Uh, algorithm or whatever that is going to be impartial and able to regulate everything for everyone. I think <laughs> if I, I, I'm curious what Elon Musk would say to that question. Um, I think it's almost inevitable that if human knowledge and computing power continues exploding as, on, the way it has, um, then Uh, in in this exponential kind of way, it's almost inevitable that there will eventually be an artificial intelligence with the brilliance and hopefully the ethical code to be the perfect leader. But I think there's going to be two problems. I think number one is you'll have a really hard time finding that AI in the pile of other AIs who don't have the ethical framework to be the perfect leader or the intelligence. And I think the other problem is that when this perfectly ethical, flawless AI comes, comes about, Uh, I, I give it about 30 minutes before the angry mob storms the computing center and smashes it all to bits with pitchforks. So I, it, it, probably, it probably will happen one day if we follow the kind of pattern we're on at the moment. Um, but I think the, the innate annoyingness of humans, uh, our refusal to do what we're told, uh, is, is going to be the biggest obstacle to anything like that. So uh, until such time as we actually start uploading ourselves, I think an, I think an AI leader is going to have a very hard time selling itself. What do you mean by uploading ourselves? Grandma sticker on the back of your laptop, and I think they've played with that concept a couple of times. AI is definitely smarter than us, but we're, we're going to destroy it before it can do anything. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. It, to me, it's like a bit of a terrifying concept. It, it, oh, not just that, just also the concept that... Uh, uh, Some scientists say that we're going to be able to transfer consciousness while we don't really understand what consciousness is or where it, where it resides. Like, how can you transfer something that, like, you have no idea what you're talking about? Well, I mean, uh, the flippant answer is what I would tell you is that as far as I understand computers, my computer works basically by magic, but I'm still able to turn it on, turn it off and make it do most things. So... It's entirely possible in my mind that we might one day find a way to map a human's neural network, although I think we're a long, long way away from having that technology, no disrespect to certain Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Um, but uh, you know, there was this famous quote, which again, I'm going to forget who said it, but it was something to the effect of, uh, uh, oh, bother, what is it? Oh, uh, yes. Um, it, the fact, ah, how embarrassing. You know, you're halfway through a quotation in your head and you forget. Anyway, something like the fact the, the fact that we, we will never be able to uh, understand the human brain because we can never have a brain complex enough to understand itself. And, and I really wish I remembered the correct phrasing because it sounds so much better when someone else says it. <laughs> the, um, whatever, the, no, that's all right. That's all right. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't know if we'll ever understand the brain. If, if anything, one of the things we'll need AI for is to one day have an AI brilliant enough to understand our brains. And then that AI, sure, might find a way to digitize our consciousnesses. And then, of course, we're going to have, we're going to have the fun of the first time somebody, go, somebody hacks another person's brain and goes in and changes some of the programming. 
and that's going to inevitably inevitably be a problem if if society moves in this sort of direction absolutely it, it, it makes me think, think of those experiments uh that they've done to like um cockroaches when they put electrodes in their brains and they can actually pilot them with a remote control and and the the, the cockroach is still alive and aware but just cannot it loses will like in any shape yeah, or form how aware it is, but i take your point yeah i mean aware of to, to the extent of how aware a normal cockroach would be yeah and you're right and um, you know humans are another level of complexity but as it is you know i could do a little hole in your, a little hole in your brain stick it in an electrode and make your fingers move so then the rest is just a question of scale Yes. Elon Musk comes to mind again with his um, Neuralink uh, project. I don't know if you if you know about it. No, I'm not an expert, but I I I understand the basics and you know he's he's wrestling with exactly some of these concepts we're talking about. If the brain is quote unquote just a series of electrical impulses and basically open closed gates and it's a little more than that, but in the end that's what it is. Uh, then in theory, all the same rules that apply to a computer could apply to a person in terms of manipulating and reprogramming and copying and you know, transferring. But uh, we'll probably, I, I kind of hope that we don't have this technology during my lifetime. It's frightening, isn't it? Uh, I think uh, the, the, the original goal is to help people with disabilities to, to live a better life. But ultimately, if they're going to be able to... Um, in, interact in a, in, in a way with your brain, like uh, having an integration that allows you to use uh, electronics with your mind. Uh, and this is something that um, I find fascinating uh, in another way. Like, let's say, uh, because they already have like mm, robotic limbs that you can control with your mind. So as soon as that technology allows you to send a text message with your mind. That means that everyone becomes telepathic to an extent. To an extent, you're right. And, and, and it is, it's an exciting and terrifying idea. And it, it will go wrong, and then hopefully we'll figure out how to make it go less wrong. Um, <laughs> this, this, video, this video game that's popular right now, Cyberpunk 2077, that people have been playing, which, of course, is so riddled with bugs as to be in some ways non-functional, which shows you how reliable our computers are. Uh, it plays exactly with some of these concepts and the ways it'll work well, the ways it'll go wrong, the way society will change and perhaps collapse because of these things. You know, humankind, humankind has proven that it's not very good at keeping up with the pace of technological change. Absolutely. And uh, um, on that note of like the collapse of... Um of the society. <laughs> I want to I wanna thank you for this uh, fantastic conversation that we're having. And is there anything else that you, that you want to um, add or uh, talk about? Um, no. I mean, obviously, I think everyone who's listening to this should go join my empire and become one of my uh, legions of servants uh, and contribute making the world a better, stranger place under my unquestioned tyrannical leadership. Um, but realistically, a bunch of them aren't going to. And that's fine because everyone needs to do their own thing. But Absolutely. look into it. For, for the ones who want to do it, what's the um, what's a website where they should um, go to? It's Eric and Empire. Uh, like American with no M. Again, named by five-year-olds. Uh, dot com. 
Uh, and of course, if you type it, if you type Eric and Empire into Google, it, it's the first match. And if you type my name into Google, it's the first match. Much to the consternation of uh, a famous neuroradiologist down in the United States who comes up, I think, fifth in the Google rankings because of me. Fantastic. Okay, thank you so much for uh, this chat and I look forward to talk to you soon again. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.